I greet you, brothers and sisters, beloved, in this day when we celebrate Christ's sufferings for us. We're going back today to Matthew chapter 12, and I want to greet you with the word Shabbat Shalom. Some of you do not know what that means. If you're Jews, I mean, you would know what that means. Shabbat means seventh day or Sabbath or Saturday, and Shalom means peace. Because Christ is our peace, and he is our rest. He's our rest. Matthew chapter 12, we are going back, and we'll study first 14 verses. Well, we see Jesus Christ right after he asked people, the needy people, to enter into his rest. Many of you are familiar with the phrase or with the abbreviation R.I.P., Rip. Remember that? You know, it's not a funeral service today, but we see that on the gravestones a lot. And it really says that rest in peace. Rest in peace. It's interesting that this Latin phrase appeared, started appearing on the gravestones in about 8th century of our era after Christ. And by 18th century, it was like widely spread. People use this phrase, rest in peace, right and left. And it's interesting that most likely it came from a biblical perspective from Isaiah 57 verse 2. And it says that those who walk uprightly enter into peace, they find rest as they lie in death. We often associate in this final peace and restfulness when you die. We love weekends, we love Saturdays, we love Sundays, because there's some rest. But we get tired in this world. We get frustrated in this world. We're working hard for our peace. We get used to work hard for our peace. And if you're today still experiencing frustration and tiredness and restlessness, and you find yourself disappointed in people around you, disappointed with your performances, and it may be because, maybe because, you or we do not understand what does it mean to have peace in your heart. Why are we struggling in the world? Why are we losing this peace that Christ gives us? We sing about this rest. We speak about this rest. We pray and confess that we have this peace, but then we go out and we often fail to live in this restfulness and we're less restless. Why is that? Why is that? And I think we need to learn from Christ. What does it mean to have rest in him? What does it mean not only at the graveyard when everything and all your troubles will be gone, at least these troubles, all your relational troubles, all your financial trouble will be no problem for you at that moment. But to live here and now in the peace of God that he provides. And it's interesting that the weapon that the enemy is using is this restlessness that comes through many, many different forms, through legalism in the church, when you have some rules and you cannot oblige by those rules and you get disappointed, or in the society, when society tells 
our children and we tell our children that you could do whatever you want to do with your life and then they go on and try it and they fail and they are restless. You see, when Jesus calls us at the 11th chapter, at the end of 11th chapter of Matthew, he calls us and he said, enter and come to me. He means it. He means it for sure that you will have this rest. But it's also interesting that this message of God's rest, of Jesus' rest, of his peacefulness, it going in the contradiction and an exact opposition of our abilities. And you notice that as we're going to go through chapter 12 later on with Pastor Tim, also that this chapter is really a changing attitude towards Christ. You'll see that this is such a great uh, opposition that Christ experienced in here. If before Pharisees and religious leaders, they were kind of looking at Jesus and kind of were suspicious of Jesus and kind of intrigued by Jesus, right now, right here in chapter 12, they're opposing Jesus. They're ready to kill him and they blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And the question is, why such a radical change when he preaches the message of peace? Well, because, because it's going right directly against human ability. Human's performances, human ability to, to obey the law of God. Now, for the Jews, it was the law of God and obedience, and they deceived themselves that they can. For the Gentiles, who created an image of God, who strive to please God with any other forms or means, they also fail and also get disappointed. And so, therefore, Jesus, showing us that we need him mightily, we have to think about ourselves as a, as a needy people who need this message of peace, not only for our salvation, but for our life here and now, for our sanctification in Christ. Jesus is openly called everyone, and he calls the, the people who are in trouble, burdened by the sin, burdened by the, the, by the dis, uh, disadvantages in life, burdened by standards, in an ability to perform, and he calls them, come to me, and I will give you rest. Now, the question, do you have this rest? Are you keeping this rest? Are you in this rest constantly? Now, in chapter 12, there are two stories that Jesus tells us, and in these two stories, he shows us that we need to learn to enter in God's rest, that we must rely on his compassion and that we must respond in faith. Those are three things that I'm going to look through it. Let's read with me. Please open your Bibles. Don't let them down. Read with me chapter 12, verse 1. At this time, Jesus went through the grain field on the Sabbath and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but for the priest alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? 
But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to to heal on the Sabbath so that they may accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, Will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable than is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to them, to to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Disciples of Christ must learn how to rest in Christ. And that is our first point, how to rest in Christ. We see that after Jesus calling them to come to him so that he will give them this peace, he does this right away to address something very big that was very special in Judaism. And for the Pharisees and for the disciples and for the whole people, and in fact for God, the issue of Sabbath. And he touches this issue of Sabbath like the nerve of Judaism. And he shows that the Sabbath was meant by God for people. And you need to learn how to rest. Now, if you be honest, like you think that with yourself, that you think that you know how to rest. But we have a trouble resting. Now, we do not know what to do with this rest. We work hard for the vacation, and then we go on a vacation, and after 10 days, we do not know, do not know what to do with this time. We just want to eager to go back. But God said, look, you need, to, you need to trust me. You need to rest in me and rest in Christ. Now, I want to remind you about the Sabbath before we dive in a little bit later, that God designed Sabbath. It was God's creation. It was God's design, and God designed Sabbath because he likes Sabbath. It's not just designed for people, but Sabbath was good for God. He likes to rest. Now, if you understand the origin of the original Sabbath, when God created the world, he created everything in six days, and he worked a lot, and he accomplished a lot, more than we could imagine. And then on the seventh day, it says that he rested. Now, the seventh day is still today, and he rested a lot more than he worked. That means that God likes resting. Original word for Sabbath comes probably from two Hebrew words, lishbat, to stop, like you're going to church and there's a stop sign and you stop, like all your activities ceased. And another probably a word that comes from lashavet, to sit, so you stop and sit and rest. That's what you're doing right now. You sit in and resting. And when God created the world, he was like this amazing artist who created the brilliant picture and he sat and rest to observe the work of his hands. And it's interesting that he created man on the sixth day. 
And the first, very first day for Adam was Sabbath, the seventh day. So for God was six days of work and seven days of rest. For Adam, the very first day of his creation was the day of rest. Yeah, it's interesting that many church fathers think that Adam have sinned on that very same day of rest. How long it took us to be restless in Adam? We do not know exactly, but perhaps the chapter 3 follows chapter 2, and it was right in that the Satan came in and just disturbed the rest that we are all enter right now into the world with restfulness, restlessness. And we're eager to find this rest. Remember Noah? When he was born, they said that perhaps he will give us comfort and rest from our works. Now, God enjoyed rest. He created man, and he gave him the earth to enjoy. When the sin came in, the peace was gone. And that's what we experience today. Now, God not only created the seventh day for rest, he also rested in it. He commands this rest. Remember, Israel, when he led them in the wilderness, before the Ten Commandments, he gave them manna, and he gave them instruction. You should collect six days, and then on the seventh day, you should not collect manna. It was just right before the Ten Commandments. Now, an interesting observation, do you think how long it took Israel to be restless and go out on the seventh day? How long it took them? At exactly seven days. Because on the seventh day, it says, they went, some of the nation, some of the people went and started collecting. In essence, God gave us rest so we could trust in him. He was created by us so we could trust in, in faith, relying on him and not on our abilities. God has provided. God has done all the work. Israel didn't work for manna, didn't cultivate the manna. They only collected the manna, and they have to rest in it. And later on, in the book of Exodus chapter 20, God gave the Ten Commandments. And he put this commandment of Sabbath rest right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Right in the center. I think he wants to communicate to us. And this is the longest of all commandments. You know, compared to you shall not murder, it's just like one phrase. But there's like four verses about how and what and how to rest on the Sabbath. And it's interesting what God created to be rejoicing on the Sabbath in his presence and his goodness, and his provision, we as people turn into something laborious, hardworking, hateful thing. And I tell you, for the regular Jews, by the time of Jesus, when they walk in through uh, grain fields on the Sabbath, the Sabbath was the hardest work to live, and people hated it because they want to get over with it. It became the, the, the fittest of the smartest, how to avoid the work, but yet to do the work on the Sabbath. But God didn't design this way. He designed it for the enjoyment of God and trusting in him. And that's why Jesus, when he, with his disciples, at the last day before the crucifixion, he would tell them last evening, he would say, do not let your heart be troubled. My peace I give to you, not like the world gives, I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, not let it be fearful. 
Christ told his disciples. And he leads his disciples through this preaching up to this moment, showing them that they are restless because they are pointing to their abilities rather than to Christ. No one could obey the law. The Beatitudes and the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, it is impossible to obey. It is impossible. No matter what you tell me, it is impossible to obey at all times. And you would fail and be crushed by this. And he said, trust me. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Now, people turn the Sabbath into some laborious work. We see as these disciples, innocent disciples, come and eat from the grain. There are lurking Pharisees whose job is really to see who broke the law. That's what they do. They're working very hard on Sabbath, by the way. Now, I understand Jesus with disciples eating and just plucking the grain. I understand they become hungry, as it says, and, or taking the snack. But what are the Pharisees doing there on the Sabbath? Well, they're really supposed to be on their couch, sitting in the comfort of their home, studying the scripture, or enjoying the family. No, they're lurking around. And this is what legalism does. When we put this, this, uh, the law upon themselves thinking that we could obey, now we deceive ourselves and we're seeking for others. What are they doing and how are they breaking this law? The disciples became hungry, understandable, but I want to tell you the disciples didn't break the law, at least not at this point yet. And they did many other points, but, but they, they, they didn't break the law because they didn't do anything really unlawful here. It was provision in the law in Deuteronomy 23, 25, that if you become hungry, you go through the vineyard and you could plug things. You can't take the sickle and rip it, but if you become hungry, you could eat from anywhere you want to see the provision for the poor. And so the disciple did that, but in according to the Talmud, according to the oral law, the disciples in the Pharisees' eyes, they were breaking the law because they were taking like a ripping and they were sifting, winnowing, and eating. At least they broke in three different occasions the law of Moses. And Jesus said, look, I'm not going to argue with you whether they broken a law or not. That's your idea. In fact, the Talmud spends 24 chapters on the observation of the law. You know what Talmud is? Talmud is oral tradition put in writings. It's like something that we do on Friday Bible studies. We come and discuss the sermon. So there was like discussion of the sermon, of the sermon, of the sermon, of the sermon. 24 chapters. What is lawful to do on the Sabbath? It becomes such a hard work to keep the law that it's just, it keep the Sabbath that is completely oblivious, the point and the purpose of, and the design of the Sabbath. Here's the thought. Now, Pharisee, as usual, split in hairs and putting the burdens, tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's shoulders. And God said, Jesus said, that they are not unwilling to move them, even with one finger, because they can. As a result, people made the stress into a hard work. Now, Jesus does not defend the disciples here in a sense that he said, well, they're they not really reaping, they're not winnowing. But he said, you misunderstand the whole idea of Sabbath. And you need to learn to trust me and deny yourself. You need to come to the gravestone 
where it says, rest in peace and die for yourself and trust in me. I, the one who give you rest. The second point I want to make, the disciples of Christ must learn to rest. And you have to ask yourself, like, do I know how to rest in Christ? Am I this legalist who's running around checking all the corners of my life? Where did I disobey the law and get bummed out about it? Am I looking at other people and judging them all the time? Or I'm the one that is, could be identified as a man of rest. I'm at peace. I could enter in the spiritual reality of Christ, no matter if there's bombs around or death around, and I'm not just like a numb to this, but I have the solid peace, like the solid foundation that does not move. I have this anchor that goes right into heaven where Christ is, and it doesn't shake my belief, no matter what happened, because I am secure that my salvation comes from Christ alone and not in my ability. The second part is that we need to learn is to learn to seek Christ and to seek Christ for who he really is. If he's the one who gives rest, he talks about himself that he is compassionate Savior. We need to realize who God is at his heart. He's not just a lawgiver. You know, he's not just this authority, which he is. He is the authority. He is the lawgiver. He is the man of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. But he is the compassionate God. And we must learn to rely on the compassion of Christ. Now, you could see the compassion of Jesus, that he cares. Verse 3 to seven and to eight, it says that he goes to Scripture, pointing to the heart of God, not just to prove his point, but pointing to the heart of God, that God is compassionate God. And God seeks compassion because end up, quote in Hosea 6, 6, I desire compassion. This is what I like. Now, when we think about Jesus, not in a good day, but on a bad day. When, when everything is bad and dark and gloomy and nothing goes your way, and you're thinking about Jesus, and you go and meet him at the scripture, what is he like? What is he like? What is Jesus like? And you find him as he is the most tender, compassionate being that you have ever met. At the darkest time, you're not looking from Jesus, what should I do, Jesus, to impress you more? What should I sacrifice for you? But you come to him and say, I need your mercy, and I need your compassion to me, because I know who I am, and I know how I act, and I know that I fail, but yet you accept me. I think as you, as a normal sinner, do that, asking for kindness, compassion, regardless of your work for Christ, because he likes that. God likes compassion. 
This is why he's holy. This is why he's different, because he's different in the way how he treats people. That's how he absolutely separated. And Jesus, in his classic Jesus approach, he answers them with two questions. You ask Jesus one question, and he asks you two. Right? He asks you, have you not read twice? This was like an irony and a sarcasm and very, very offensive to the scholars. It's like to ask Albert Einstein, have you ever seen Math Table? Or the Rembrandt, have you ever looked at the Mona Lisa? Do you know who, who, who made Mona Lisa? So these scholars, they study the scripture. They run around. They present themselves that they not only know the scripture, but they obey the scripture. And he said, well, have you not read and he gave them two examples, one from the prophets, which is Samuel, and one from the, the law of Moses. And he asked them, have you not read about David? David was running away from Saul. And it's in 1 Samuel, we read the story. Running away from Saul, verse 21, chapter 21, verse 6, and he come to this place of Nob, where there was uh, the high priest, and he asked something to eat. Now, David, besides that he lied, you know, that he's on a secret mission, right? We, we'll just omit that completely for now. He presented himself like he's on a secret mission for Saul, because the priest is very, very scared, and he said, do you have something to eat? And he said, well, I have nothing to eat except these 12 breads that is really show bread, that nobody could eat according to the Leviticus, only the priests, and only at the seventh day. It was old bread, because every Sabbath they have to represent and replenish this bread, and the priests eat old bread, and they put a new bread on the table, a presentation. And it was a sign that God is with them, and God provides, but David said, well, come on, give it to us, we'll eat it. And notice how God, Jesus, he talks about David, that he had not sinned. Now, it was clearly prescribed that nobody could eat it except the sons of Aaron. And yet Jesus said they're innocent. Why is that? David clearly broke the law, and yet he was innocent. And we're going to come back to that. The second reason, the second thing, that Jesus is going directly to the law of Moses Direct, directly to the priesthood. And he's saying, look, have you not read about the priests who are working very, very hard on Sabbath? And in fact, this word says and that they're breaking the law. It says that they profane the Sabbath. Profane. When something profanity comes from your mouth, you profane. So normally, every Jew has to obey the Sabbath and not work and have to rest. But priests, they work double. They work double on Sabbath because they bring double the sacrifices for the people. And what Jesus is saying, that I'm compassionate God. I care for you and I care for David and I care for my disciples more than I care about the Sabbath regulations. Because if they're hungry and the life is on the line, is a more important because the Sabbath was created for men. I'm a compassionate God. 
I'm not just a law giver. I gave you the law so that you could live. Now, how I could twist it all around and make it so legalistic and so righteous at the expense of people. In the same way, Jesus responded with priests and he said, for God's mercy is more important than the sacrifice. God's mercy more important than the sacrifice. Because the priests, what they do at the Sabbath, they work hard, but what are they working for? They're working for people's well-being. The job of the priest was to present people to the holy God. And if they would not do that, the people will be guilty. That was the ministry of reconciliation, ministry of peace, that they work in very, very hard, something that the people cannot do for themselves. And Jesus said, well, yes, it is allowable and it's legal to work as long as this work goes as a mercy to other people. Mercy trumps the law. Mercy trumps the sacrifice. That's what Jesus says. Have you not learned? I wish you would know. You're the teachers of my people, and you do not understand the heart of God. Now, you could motivate people by many different ways. Guilt-tripping them, putting the high standard, telling them that they could do that, they could jump over the Atlantic Ocean and be the winner. But at the end of the day, it will be a big splash, big disappointment, and unless you motivate people with the compassion of God, that all, the rest of the fruits, is really labor of work and flesh, and it's junk. Jesus is clearly saying, look to me, I am. I am very gentle and humble in heart. Why does he say that? It's not just because it's attractive. It's because who he is. No matter what you make of Jesus, this is who he is in heart. This is who God is in heart. And that is why he said, enter into my rest. He works. I work. I produce. I obey. And you come into my rest. I ask once a surgeon, I ask him, you spent more than 10 years just studying for that, laboring. And now you're working hard and long hours. Like, why do you do that? Is it for money? And he said, no, I don't know. Maybe others do for money. I don't do for money. I just want to help people in a way that they can't help themselves. I mean, that's what priests did. That's what bread's supposed to do. That's what Jesus did. He comes in to help us in a ways that we can help ourselves. And we come in humility to him, relying on his compassion. Jesus is also saying that human life is more important than the Sabbath. The mercy is more important than your ability to impress God and sacrifices. And I am, he said more important than anything else. He said, I'm more important than the temple here. When you think about temple, temple is the representation of the whole system. You have no temple, you have no system. 
there's a system with the law in it. And Jesus said, you look at that? Look at that temple? I more important than that. Three times in Matthew chapter 12, he said something greater, something greater, something greater. Once referring to, to Jonah, he said something greater than Jonah is here. The sign is greater. Matthew 12, 42, he said something is greater than Solomon is here. The better wisdom, the better preacher. And here he said something greater than the temple is here. And I truly believe that he refers to himself. I am the greatest. I am the one. I am the Sabbath. The Sabbath was supposed to point to the rest that you can't really get. The priests are working for your peace. They have to point out that there's supposed to be someone, Messiah, come in to give you this rest. And I am finally here. Why are you not rejoicing and just lay your burden on me? For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, Hosea said, and in the knowledge of God rather than burn offerings. Micah says, with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with, with earring calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams? In 10,000 rivers of oil shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Here's the thought for you. You're thinking, what is the will of God for my life? And we're looking for specific things. Should I do this for God? Should I do this for God? And God said, stop. Shabbat. I give you peace. Shabbat shalom. Learn how to take it. Learn how to rest in it before you do anything. And be impressed, not by your abilities, but by my compassion to you. Be impressed. Learn. Do not tell me about your sacrifices. Show me your compassion to others. That it comes out in the unprecedented ways that nobody knows. Those compassions that not just like put on a pedestal and say, well, this is what I did for people and this is how I good and I feel compassion. That nobody knows, but the spirit moves you in the direction that nobody understands, nobody knows in a very free, liberated way. And Jesus said, because I am the Lord of Sabbath. He said, I am the author of the Sabbath. <laughs> in, in Greek, it says, the Lord of Sabbath, the Son of Man is. This emphasis, I am the one who gave you this law of the Sabbath, and I'm the Lord of it. I define what Sabbath is supposed to do for you. But he also says, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Yes, the Son of Man is the Messianic title. But it also says the Son of Man. And when you hear that, it's not just God and lawgiver who gives the law and all the authority comes from him, but he is one of us. Son of Man. Compassionate. Solidarity with humanity. That's what he communicates. Standing for the human interest. 
That's what he is. That's why he came to represent us before God. You have to have a lot of compassion. You have to be God. He's the Lord who cares about people. That is why he gave any of the commandments that he gave. And he says, come and trust me. Come and trust me. Disciples of Christ, we need to learn how to rest in him. Do you know how to rest in Christ? Disciples of Christ also have to be impressed and learn how to be impressed with the heart of God, which is full of compassion, love, and mercy, and grace. And not to be impressed with yourself. And that is a constant problem. And the thirdly, that we must respond in faith. Verses 8 to 14, there's a story that the Lord Jesus goes to their synagogue. And it's like Jesus wanted to provoke them more. So he was just walking and he didn't say anything about the disciples that they would provoke the Pharisees who were lurking and seeing in a legalistic way how they could accuse Jesus. And now he goes right into the synagogue and so I'm going to show you what the Sabbath is supposed to be. What does that resting in Christ mean in me? And he goes and, and, and I think that he knows that there's a guy with a withered hand. And I think they do too because it says that they are we're looking and seeking, asking this question, specific question again, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Man, what a stupid question. Don't you think? What a stupid question. Is it lawful to do good? I mean, how confused we should be to ask this question. How confused we should be asking, is it, do, is it good to do good or is it good to do evil? Hmm, let me think about this, right? The scholars who sits and who just think, yes, I think we think that this is what God prescribes us to do, to do evil on the Sabbath. Don't you think? Let's write 24 chapters about this. Here we have a clear example of the needy people who was discarded by these people lower than an animal. That's what they did. They look at him as a precedent to accuse Jesus and to finally blaspheme him. A person with a dry hand sitting and representing them all. Like he can't really lift this hand. All of them, they can't lift a finger for God. They can't do, can't impress God. You know, when we see these people, sick people, needy people, depressed people, Financially struggling people, what do you think about them? What do you do with them? You try to avoid them, try to have a nice conversation about sunshine or what? What do you do with them? That's not what Jesus style. When he see a person in his need who can't help himself, he comes and help. And they're banking on it. This Pharisees, that is the craziest thought. They're banking on the thought that Jesus will help. So if you put Jesus, the man of God, in a situation where there is a need, on the Sabbath, we know exactly what he's going to do. He's going to heal that man. Let's set a trap. You see, legalism is simple, you know, because you, all you need is just like high thought about yourself, a couple of sprinkle, a couple of uh, commandments from the Bible, follow the rules, and you'll be done. You, you have a system. It does not allow for God's grace 
It doesn't allow, allow it for the heart of God to, to shape your heart. It doesn't allow it to move freely without boundaries and unexpected ministries. But all legalism could do is making people condemn. Somebody said legalism is working hard, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work for God. And Jesus appealed to their conscience. So twice he already appealed to the scripture. He said, well, I'll give you a historical example about David. What do you think? Did he violate it? Well, he did, but there was a justification why he did it. Because there was a provision by the heart of God. Priests are working for the mercies, and they're breaking the profane in Sabbath. But that was good. And now I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you a question. What do you think? What do you, what do you really think? Oh, Jesus knows what they think. Even though they're so confused. They're confused about valuable in life. Like which life is more valuable? Animals or peoples? They're confused people. I mean, we have many of them today, confused people who are value animal more than life of people, right? They put people for speaking the truth in jail, and they let the wild animals free. I mean, that's how confused we should be. You know, don't get me wrong. Jesus loved animals. He loved sheep. He cared for sheep, but he also ate them. And so with me, too, you're like, I love animals. We have many animals. We have a bunch of cats. I don't know where they come from, but they're just attracted to our backyard. And we have some bunnies. And I love bunnies dearly. But I tell you, if there's a famine in the land, they go first. Let my, my, my daughter forgive me, but you know, I care for her more than for the animals. And that's what Jesus said. How confused you should be. Like, you don't understand what is more valuable, which life on the Sabbath? Because he said, if you're a righteous man, you will care for the life of animals. That's what prescribes in the law. But if you're a righteous man, you will show your righteousness in mercy. You will value mercy. Might I remind you that our job is to spread God's mercy. Not Judgment, not our judgment. We must speak of sin. We should not sugarcoat it. We must expose it. But the motivation must be seeking compassion and mercy for those people who are in sin because we have ministry of reconciliation. We're working hard for that because we're joining in Christ's ministry of reconciliation but not the ministry of observation, not the ministry of condemnation. That is not our job. Our job is to preach Christ, who is the Savior of people, and who will come and judge if you don't accept him. But show mercy. I mean, Jesus looks at their hearts, and he sees this anger, Mark 3, 4 says, when he had looked round about on them with anger. When he looked, he saw that they don't get it. They don't get the law. They don't get God. They're so deceived. They're so confused that he had feelings, it says, that the Lord felt 
Jesus felt anger, and he was grieved, it says, in Luke chapter 6, verse 9. He was grieved at the, hearts, at, at the hardness of their hearts. Even to them, Jesus had a compassion. And he goes to this man who is totally unable to stretch his hand, and he told him the impossible, stretch your hand. Stretch your hand. And that's what faith is. When we come to God by faith, not by words, but by faith, we are care, caring only about his mercy and compassion. We don't care about anything else. Like this man, he didn't care that he was put on the spot, right in the synagogue. He didn't care that there was tension in the room between Pharisees and Jesus. He didn't care about that because faith is like that. It's at the opportunity to seek and to grab God's grace, he just reaches out and grab it. That's what faith does. It let go of yourself and grab Christ. Genuine faith always obey. This rest in Christ is never just doing nothing. It's doing things by faith. Genuine faith always obeys, always and if you don't obey, it's not by faith. If you obey for other some reason, it's not obedience. It's not a shame to be spotted in the crowd. It's not offended by anything. When you tell people that you are unable to do so and he gets offended, he thinks that he's able, right? But if he's not offended, that means that he really knows that he can't. And he just says, sure, of course. What are you talking about? I can't lift this hand. It's been with her for a long time, and all of a sudden, he has the power because God, through faith, enables people to do what he wants us to do. You know, maybe it is your condition. Maybe you are restless today. Maybe you're sitting in this crowd and listening at the couch, and you're paralyzed in your belief. Maybe it is you who say, I cannot repent. I cannot believe. I cannot trust this Jesus. I don't even see my need. I understand you. I understand you because faith is the gift of God and you can't do a thing. But when you do, you will grab. More to it, Jesus understands you. That's why he came. He knows that you're cold in your love for God. He knows that you're guilty. And he, perhaps you tried to cleanse yourself and you failed miserably. And that is why he's calling you. He said, come to me. And I will enable you. Just come to me and trust. Let go of yourself. Put the RIP on your life and rest in peace, but rest in me. We enter God's rest when we believe and are saved. But the final consummation of God's rest comes with Christ's return. Then we will finally get to fully understand what God's rest is like. He prepared this. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord. There it is. When we enter God's rest, we rest from our works of the law of our obligations, just like God rested from his. By the way, should we keep the seventh day holy? 
Should we switch it to Sunday? Absolutely not. Every day is the same. Every day is holy because we are at rest. You should not only rest in Jesus on Sundays. That would be the bad thing. You should rest in Christ every day and work hard by faith, trusting in him, spreading the mercies of God. Entering God's rest means we could stop trying to be accepted by God because we are. Finally, we can abide in Christ and in his love. How refreshing that is. I don't know about you, but I constantly trying to please God and then I repent. It exhausts me. But know this, that he's already well pleased with us through Christ. Faith lifts weight off of us, allowing us to work to bring him glory freely, knowing that whatever we do can't disappoint him. We are in his peace because Christ is our Sabbath. Shabbat shalom. Rest in Christ. Father, we thank you. How little do we know you? But I'm glad you do know us. How weak our faith holding strong for what Christ offers. But we thank you that your hand is so strong that out of your hand, no one can take us away. How weak is our love toward you often. But how strong is your love? And you're constantly communicating to us through Christ, through his word, and through the spirit. That you're not impressed in our abilities, but you are impressed in Christ's abilities. And because of him, we are adapted. We praise you. How refreshing is that? Thank you, Jesus. Christ's name we pray. Amen.